We've been looking over the course of the last several weeks at certain points of truth that we are referring to as fundamental truths. And by that, we mean that these truths are foundational. They really do undergird or provide the support for everything else that we do and everything that we're supposed to be as Christians. And so as we thought about some of those various truths, we have noted the importance, first and foremost, of the idea that God exists and the various ways that we can come to reason that there is indeed a God, whether we're talking about the concept of cause and effect or whether we're talking about the really intelligence of design or morality. We spent time thinking after we talked about the concept of God, talking about the idea that Jesus is the Son of God. That not only is it possible for us to establish that there was a man named Jesus of Nazareth who was a real historical character, but that Jesus of Nazareth is indeed the Messiah that the Old Testament looked forward to. And then we established over the course of some time the idea that the Bible is the Word of God, that it meets the criteria that God's Word would meet, and that it has certain characteristics that could not have been implanted within it by mere man. And so those three concepts, the concept of God's existence, the concept that Jesus is the Son of God, and the concept that the Bible is the Word of God are really pillars or fundamental truths. They support everything else that we believe and everything else that we seek to do. From that, we have started looking more closely at what the Bible, which is the inspired Word of God, teaches us about the church. And after looking at a series of metaphors that are found in Scripture to help us to really learn some things about the church, whether we're talking about the church being the house of God, or the flock of God, or the spokesman of God, or the body of Christ, or the bride of Christ, or the family of God, we realize that the Bible talks about the church as a collection of God's people. That it's not a building, that it's not just an organization, but that you and I have the opportunity to be a part of the church. Now, if we're going to learn more about it, I think we need to spend just a little time thinking about the origin of the church. And that's really what I want us to spend some time this evening thinking about, at least in part. If you're thinking about the origin of the church, there really are four components to the church's existence. There is the idea of the church being planned eternally in the mind of God. There is the idea of the church being predicted in Scripture. Not only did God have a plan for the establishment of the body of Christ, but he predicted that it would be established. But besides the planning of the church or the prediction of the church, there is the proclamation of the church. And we see this especially in the work of both John the Baptist and in Jesus. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What do they have in mind? What is this kingdom of heaven that is at hand that they're describing? And then, of course, we see the production of the church. And it takes place in Acts, the second chapter. And there's some things in that passage that we'll notice if time allows. So let's start for just a moment and think about the church 
being planned from all of eternity. Open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1. And I want you to pay careful attention to what Paul writes beginning in verse 7 of this passage. He says, in him, and of course Jesus is the one whom Paul is considering at this juncture. In him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself. That in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in Him. Now you notice an emphasis being placed in the passage on being in Him. And the reason for that emphasis goes back to verse 3 where the text tells us that all spiritual blessings are found in Christ. If we are in Christ, we have access to all spiritual blessings. If we are not in Christ, we have no access to those spiritual blessings. And he highlights the blessing of redemption that comes through the blood of Jesus which demonstrates to us the riches of the grace of God. Now when verse 8 goes on to say to us, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will, that begins to hint at the point that I'm trying to make. God had a plan from all of eternity. He foresaw the rejection of man, he foresaw the sin that man would engage in, and he understood what would be needed in order to bring redemption for the sins of humanity. It would not be through animal sacrifices. Now the plan that God had at one time was a mystery. It was something that certain individuals did not understand. There were prophets who did not understand the fullness of the message that they were relaying to their audience. Peter tells us that there are things that angels desire to look into, things that even the angels of God did not understand. And yet, what Paul is doing here in the book of Ephesians is showing us that that plan which God had, which at one time was a mystery, part of His eternal plan, is now being revealed. And it was part of God's eternal plan to bring together Jew and Gentile into one body through the death of Jesus. And so in verse 10 of the passage, it goes on to say that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in Him. That word dispensation is an important word for a variety of reasons, but it's a word that we sometimes misuse. If I ask you what's a dispensation, I'm pretty sure that someone would say it is a period of time. That's not the case. A dispensation does not refer to a period of time, although it spans a period of time. A dispensation refers to a law code. 
there was a time in which God dealt with the fathers of the families, and we refer to that as the patriarchal dispensation. There was a time in which God dealt with the followers of Moses, if you will, or the children of Israel who were under the law of Moses, and we refer to that as the Mosaic dispensation. But what's the dispensation that Paul has in mind here in Ephesians chapter 1? It is the dispensation of the fullness of times. And you might remember that that phrase is also used in the book of Galatians. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. It's not a mistake that those phrases are parallel because it refers to the dispensation of Christ. What was going to happen in the dispensation of Christ, which at one time was a mystery, which at one time had not been revealed. God is going to bring together, as this passage tells us, in one. One what? One body, one church, one church that has been planned from all of eternity. All things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in Him. Now the passage that we most frequently use to describe the planning of the church from all of eternity is a little later on in the book of Ephesians. Go on to chapter 3 in your Bibles. And if you're familiar with Ephesians chapter 3, you realize that it is in this chapter where the Apostle Paul really does reveal how God has blessed him with the opportunity to reveal what was formerly a mystery. And he's getting back to this passage that we've already talked about in Ephesians chapter 1 verses 7 through 10. And so after talking about how God has blessed him with this opportunity, Paul says this beginning in verse 8, To me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now pay careful attention to what he says in verse 11. All of this that Paul has been thankfully capable of revealing to individuals, revolves around what he calls the eternal purpose which God accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, what is that eternal purpose? It is to provide salvation for both Jew and Gentile in one body, which is the church. And it is the responsibility of the church to make that manifold wisdom of God known to the world. How does the world know they need Jesus Christ if the church doesn't tell them? And so we have an obligation. But importantly, what Paul does here in the book of Ephesians is to show his audience and us in turn that the church that exists even today, the one body that brings together Jew and Gentile and puts them together in one group, was not an afterthought. It was not created because the Jews rejected Jesus and therefore God sent His apostles to the Gentiles. It was God's plan all along to bring Jew and Gentile together in one body. It was in the eternal plan of God. 
I don't think it's possible to talk about the origin of the church without at least beginning to talk about how the church has always been a part of God's plan. It was not an alternative plan. It was the plan. Now with the understanding that the church was part of God's plan from all of eternity, let's look at the second part of this, the prediction of the church. And the first place that I want us to turn is in the book of Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. When last we met in this study, we mentioned the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar had in Daniel the second chapter, which is described in detail. Daniel is able to reveal to the king the details of his dream, which included a great statue that was made of different component parts. Head of gold, chest of silver, midriff of brass, legs of iron and feet of iron mixed with clay. And Daniel reveals, as he is telling the king about this dream, what each component part of the statue represents. You, O king, are the head of gold. In other words, the Babylonian kingdom over which Nebuchadnezzar ruled was the head of gold in the dream. And as you go through the ages of history, the different parts of that statue were represented by the subsequent kingdoms which would reign and rule, including the Medes and the Persians, the Greek Empire, and the Roman Empire. But that's not all that this dream that is declared in Daniel chapter 2 talks about. So let's watch what happens in the dream itself. Daniel 2 beginning in verse 31. You, O king, were watching, and behold, a great image. This great image, whose splendor was excellent, stood before you, and its form was awesome. The image's head was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its leg of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You watched while a stone was cut out without hands, which struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. The wind carried them away so that no trace of them was found, and the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now there's some imagery that Daniel uses here that's very important to understand the point of the passage. This great image, which he describes as awesome, has appeared in King Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And yet, as great as this image is, as glorious as it might seem, there is a little stone. Daniel describes it as being cut out without hands. It's not a man-made stone. There's an indication there that this stone and what it represents is not by man's design. Do you want to know a great argument for the fact that the church that belongs to Jesus is not a denomination? Daniel chapter 2 provides us with that argument. It's not a stone cut out with human hands. It's not something that we have designed. It is something that comes from divine design. And this stone strikes the image on its feet. As great as the image is, the image topples, which shows us that the one who rules in the kingdoms of men that Daniel keeps describing over and over is truly above even the great kingdoms of the world. And so this statue falls. 
But the stone that caused the statue to crumble does not simply lie dormant. It becomes, verse 35, a great mountain. And it fills the whole earth. More on that in just a moment. But notice what verse 44 goes on to say. After talking about when each of these component parts in turn would exist in authority, Daniel talks about the last part, the legs of iron and the feet of iron mixed with clay. And he says, In the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. The kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Daniel's not talking about a stone when he's interpreting the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar. He's talking about a kingdom that's going to knock these other kingdoms down and stand forever. What's he talking about? He's talking about the same kingdom that Jesus is talking about in Matthew 16. When Peter confesses, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus responds, Blessed are you, Simon, Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. How long is the church going to stand? Well, the gates of Hades aren't going to destroy it. And then using parallel language, Jesus goes on to say, And I will give to you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. What's he talking about? He's talking about the church. Now, with the imagery of Daniel chapter 2 in mind, particularly the imagery of that stone that becomes a great mountain and fills the whole earth, look at Isaiah chapter 2 for just a moment. Isaiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. You have similar language being used to describe this kingdom. The prophet writes, now it shall come to pass in the latter days. There's a phrase that references not the end of time, but the final dispensation, the time of God's last covenant with humanity. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. And it shall be exalted above the hills. How great is this kingdom that that Isaiah is now describing? It's not just like a mountain. It's like a mountain on top of a mountain. He says, all nations shall flow to it. Many people shall come and say, come and let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord out of Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. What does this passage describe for us? It describes the very same rock that Daniel's talking about in Daniel chapter 2, verse 35. The rock that became a mountain and filled the whole earth. It is a mountain on top of the mountains. It will be seen by all, exalted above the hills. All nations shall flow to it. Individuals will recognize it as the house of God. Paul uses that language in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15. The house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. But he also tells us in this passage a little bit about this this mountain. It will go forth from Jerusalem... That will be the beginning point. 
the word of the Lord will flow from it. The church has the responsibility of teaching God's word. And verse 4 says, He shall judge between the nations and rebuke many people. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Why would you take precious metal that was needed for weapons and turn them into farming implements? The only reason you would do that is if your kingdom was a peaceful one. I can assure you that the Babylonian Empire or the Medo-Persian Empire or the Greek Empire or the Roman Empire did not turn their weapons of war into farming tools. But Isaiah is saying the kingdom that comes from the mountain of God will do so. We're not waging carnal warfare to win souls. We're using the arguments of God's truth. It is a peaceful kingdom. That's why Jesus, when he was confronted by Pilate, said, if my kingdom were of this world, my, ser my servants would fight. But my kingdom is not from here. That's the point. The church is the spiritual kingdom predicted by God's word. Now, the last one of these passages to notice tonight, look at Joel chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, beginning in verse 28. Prophet Joel writes, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also on my men servants and on my maid servants I will pour out my spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord had said, among the remnant whom the Lord calls. If Daniel provides us with some insight into the kingdom not being made with hands, and to the timing of that kingdom, and Isaiah provides us with some insight into the nature of that kingdom and the place from which that kingdom would begin, then Joel provides us with another very significant detail regarding that kingdom. It is going to come at a time in which the Spirit of God will be poured out. And of course, in the New Testament, we find the Spirit of God being poured out in Acts, the second chapter, which marks the beginning of the church that is prophesied here in Joel chapter 2. There's other details that are important, of course, including the necessity of obedience, which is what Joel chapter 2 and verse 32 is pointing toward when it says, It shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Joel is not trying to indicate that all one must do is to cry out, Lord, save me. He is trying to show consistently with the use of that phrase calling on the Lord as it's used all the way throughout Scripture from Abraham's time onward that there is an intentional obedience that seeks the will of God. If you want to be a part of this kingdom that Daniel is predicting and that Isaiah is predicting and that Joel is predicting, you must yield to God's will.
obedience. That's why Jesus is described as the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him.